0: So we're going to start in Genesis 6, verse 13, and read through chapter 7. This is the word of God. And God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh. The earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that the Lord commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood of clean animals. And of animals that are not clean, and of birds, and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah, as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened And rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed. It increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures which swarm on the earth. And all mankind, everything on the dry land and whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing. That was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left. And those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray for the Lord's help. Lord, as we hear this, we are struck immediately. By your righteous judgment. So Lord, first of all, as we look to your word today, give us a right fear of you. But Lord, also we are reminded that there is salvation. So Lord, in our salvation in Christ, knowing there is no condemnation for us, give us a right love for you. Help us to understand your word by your Spirit's enlightening power in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we have been at it in Genesis since March 20th. So 18 Sundays of uh, Genesis sermons, and I think we're due for a little bit of a review because we are into the thick of it now. So Let's just re- review very quickly as we look back. Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth at the very beginning, there's this chaos over the waters, or chaos in the waters, and God rules over the waters, and God speaks, and he brings order. We see God's authority and power in Genesis 1, in that whatever God says, it happens exactly as God said it. God said there would be light, and there was light. God said that there would be an expanse between the waters above and the waters below, and God made the expanse, and it was so. And God said, let the waters gather together, and the dry land appeared, and it happened. Everything God said happened. We see the power of God's word. The heavens and the earth are obedient to God. God rules over all creation by his word. At the very beginning, every atom, every particle, every quark is obedient to the voice of God because God is God. He's creator. He is king over all creation. Then as the last act of creation, the end of Genesis 1, God creates humanity in His image to be His representatives on the earth. And He delegates His authority to them. So that they would rule over his creation in his name and fill the earth with his glory. That's it's our purpose. And if you, were, if you were to summarize chapter 1 of Genesis, you might say something like, God's glory in creation is most exemplified in his creation of man, his image bearers. Or you might just read Psalm 8 as we did and say that's the summary of Genesis 1. Then you get to Genesis 2 And as a show of God's unique relationship with humanity, we see they are placed in His His holy garden, His dwelling place. And God covenants with them with the understanding that so long as they rule as His representatives, they will dwell with Him and have access to the tree of life forever. And that's when everything turns, isn't it? It doesn't happen that way. In chapter 3, the man and the woman rebel against God. And the Lord God expels them from His dwelling place. He disciplines them to remind them again who He is and who they are. But That's not the end of the story. God's God's judgment of the man and woman is filled, absolutely filled with mercy. In God's mercy, He promises restoration. Restoration will come. He says that through the offspring of the woman probably the most important verse in the Old Testament, through the offspring of the woman will come an end to the serpent who had deceived the woman. And then in chapters 4 and 5, we see that God has been faithful. He's faithful to bless the man and the woman with offspring, just as He said He would. And several of their lineage continue in faithfulness to God. They worship and fear God. And yet, we also see that because of the sin that Adam has brought into the world. And because of that serpent's continued corrupting influence, there's more, even more of a departure from God. And there's more and more violence in the world. Clearly, there's there's a branch of the family tree that does not worship and fear God. So by the time we get to Genesis 6, where we are now, a further debasement has has taken place wherein the the human families are allowing their daughters into these marriages that have been forbidden by God. And what that revealed to us was that that humanity still had this dissatisfaction with being God's image bearers. They had this this longing for power and, and for glory by means other than representing God. And this does not go well for humanity. They're plunged further and further into corruption, absolute and total rebellion against God, to the point where it can hardly be said at all that they represent God anymore. Humanity have made themselves out to be gods in themselves. And rather than the entire earth being filled with the glory of God, through his vice regents, through his image bearers, Genesis 6.11 says that the entire earth was filled instead with violence. Humanity is not reflecting the character of God, rather humanity is identified with rebellion against God. And creation, led by humanity, has is no, longer, is, is, is no longer ordered as God had designed it to be, with God ruling over man and man ruling over creation in submission to God. Humanity has just broken everything. And that's when God in His holiness and in His justice resolves to take care of the mess that we had made. Genesis 6-7, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, I'm sorry that I've made them. So what's happening? Judgment is coming for the entire earth. We saw this a month ago, but not judgment only. We saw this the following week. Salvation is also coming. By the grace of God, there is a man who knows that that God is God and he fears God and he walks with God and his name is Noah and because God favors Noah Genesis 6:8 Noah uh, God re- reveals his plan of judgment to Noah we see this in 6:17 God speaking to Noah says for behold I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth now he already said that at the beginning of chapter 6 now he's telling Noah the plan Everything that is on the earth shall die, and that catches us up to where we are this morning, the judgment of God and the preservation of Noah and his family. And we could go through this section by section, but as you notice as we were reading there's a lot of repetition in in these sections, uh, purposeful repetition, but rather than going through section by section, verse by verse, I want to ask just one really big question. Because I think this, will help, this question will help give us some understanding about what's going on here. question that I have is when we look at this and we see that humanity, humanity deserves judgment, the question is why this type of judgment? Why the flood and the ark? What I mean is God is God, right? He could have brought justice to the world in any way he chose to. He could have made it all right Again, by any means, think about all the the, the later judgments from God. In Egypt, in the Exodus, he sends the angel of death to kill all the firstborn of Egypt. Why not do that here in Genesis? Or why not a a virus? Or lightning? Or fire from the sky? God in his power could have just said the words. and all of humanity, except Noah and his family, would cease to exist. God could just say it, and it would happen. But instead, we have this unusual story of God resolving to destroy all humanity and all livestock and the wild animals and the birds and the insects, the creeping things, with a flood. Meanwhile, preserving Noah and his family and the creatures brought to him in this houseboat. Why did he do it this way? And if we can answer the question of why the flood and the ark, then we can better understand the point of chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9, and really how this fits into all of Scripture God's big story of redemption. So, to answer the why question, I first want all of you to notice we're, I'm going to give you four reasons. So, if you're taking notes, you can try to write them down, but the try is all you'll get. To, to answer the why question, I, I first of all I want you to notice the similarities between Genesis 6, our text, and Genesis 1. There's a lot of similarities. In Genesis 1, the end, you have humanity as sort of the the destination point of the chapter, the destination point of creation. We find God's plan to create the man, and then the creation of the man, and, and then the commands given from God to the man, all at the end of Genesis 6. So, Genesis 1 20, or Genesis 1, rather. Genesis 1 God said, Let us make man in our image. Genesis 1 God made him in his image. Genesis 1 28, and he blessed them, and he commanded them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion. And God's plan, or God's plan this time is to reverse what is taking place in Genesis 1. God begins Genesis 6 with the human, Noah, and he gives him a command. To build the ark because God is going to undo the creation of man. We're going to undo. So we're moving backwards now. Starting at the end of chapter 1. Going backwards. And as chapter 6 moves forward. It's like we're moving backward in chapter 1. From humanity we move to the beasts of the earth. Genesis 6.19. And of every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark. And that, remember that's how they were created. They were created male and female. And that's how they're being preserved. Into the ark beasts. And then, Genesis 6.20, the birds. So, the beast, if you remember, that was day six of creation. Then we go back to the birds on day five, and then we go backwards from day five to the vegetation. So, in Genesis 6.21, God says, get a bunch of food and put it in the ark. That's the vegetation. So, now, we're, uh, now that we're back all the way to, to day three of creation, And this is also, if you'll notice later on in chapter 7, this is the order that things were brought into the ark. The food was brought into the ark, or or rather the beast are brought, the family of Noah is brought into the ark, then the beast, then the birds. It's this this reversal of creation. Then once the deluge begins, we go back to the the beginning of day three of creation. So we're going backwards in chapter 1, as we go forwards in chapter 6. So backwards in chapter 1, we go back to the 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 uh, vegetation and then the rain begins. We go back into day two of creation. Look at Genesis seven eleven. In the six hundredth year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the seventeenth day of the month, and that those those numbers are to tell you this happened in history. And on that day, a specific day in time in history, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. So remember on day two of creation, God created an expanse that separated the waters above from the waters below. Verse 11 that we just read is describing the undoing of that expanse. No more will the waters above be separated from the waters below. The expanse is broken open. The windows in the skies that are holding the water back are opened up. The storehouses of water underneath the ground are released, and what is held above and below by God's power is undone. It comes crashing down and it comes bursting, gushing up. And that dry land that had emerged on day three goes back down to its day two status. And the result is Genesis 7:19. The waters prevailed so mightily that all the high mountains. Under the whole heaven were covered. Now we're back to where creation was at the very beginning. Are you seeing that? Do you see the undoing of creation? We're back now. That water covers the whole earth. We've seen that before. We saw that in Genesis 1 2. And we'll see next week, if you peek ahead into chapter 8, you're gonna see Noah send out a dove. And this dove, which is representative of the Holy Spirit, is is flying over the waters of creation, exactly like the Spirit in Genesis 1 2. The earth was without form and void, darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. You see the undoing of creation here? What we see here is that God isn't simply judging humanity, He's undoing everything, He's reversing what He has made. And that's why He uses a flood. That's the, A flood is the only way to truly show the, this reality of de-creation. There are implications to this, aren't there? A couple of questions that uh, your Sunday school class might have, uh, elementary school Sundays, Sunday school class might have. Decreating in this means, the way that God has, is judging creation, means that along with guilty humanity, clearly humanity is guilty, but the kingdom of the earth is also destroyed. Everything that belongs to humanity is destroyed. That's what we see with God wiping away the birds and the beasts and the puppies. These creators, these creations all belong to humanity's kingdom. And our temptation in our minds, this is at least me this week as I'm reading this, I have been raised with a Disney mind. And so I look at this and I think, well, that's not fair of God to do it that way. What did the animals do to deserve this? Do you have that question? What, what did the animals do to deserve this? The people are the guilty ones. First of all, we need to shift from that worldview because that is an unbiblical worldview, the one that I just introduced to you, that you might already have and not know it. Animals are not individuals with personhood and rights and so on despite what our city council says. That's something we made up. And we made it up because we have too much food and too much leisure and too much time and too much money. Dogs and cats and birds and sheep and goats and cattle and so on, they were all beasts that humanity has been given the responsibility to care for and rule over. And God views the world, God created the world in this way, He views the world as the kingdom that He has given to man to rule over for God's glory. Psalm 8. That's humanity's purpose. That's what Genesis 1.28 is all about. God blesses them with, in a sense, He's blessing humanity with, with ownership of the entire world, and that ownership includes birds, fish, animals, and the creeping things, and puppies. So when humanity ruins the world with violence and sin, all of the world is suffering under humanity's wickedness. It's very much a Romans 8.22 situation. The earth groans as it waits for the true kings of humanity. Those who will rule with righteousness and justice under the authority of God, rightfully, in obedience to God. That's what the world is longing for. That's what the, that the earth is groaning for in Romans 8. The world and all that is in it has been entrusted to humanity. So the lives of all that is in it, including the lives of the birds and the beasts... Those lives are tied to humanity themselves. Therefore, the judgment of humanity affects the animals. We actually see this principle at work throughout Scripture. Think of of Sodom and Gomorrah. All of Sodom is judged for the wickedness of the leaders of the town. All of Egypt is judged in the Exodus, including the beasts, for Pharaoh's treatment of the Israelites. All of Canaan is judged by God, including the children, including the beasts, because of the wickedness of the men. There's this principle of what we call solidarity between the rulers and their subjects. That is the biblical worldview. Because really, that worldview lines up with reality a whole lot more than our individualistic worldview, where we think what we do do doesn't impact others. But it does. Think of a father who leaves his family; his family is impacted by that. But before we begin to think, well, that's not fair. This this worldview, this solidarity stuff, isn't fair. This, this is what gives us salvation, friends. For those of us who are in Christ, our salvation is determined not by our righteousness, but by the righteousness of King Jesus. As citizens of his kingdom, we benefit from his goodness. We receive his reward and his inheritance. So, man, it seem like it's fair from, a, from our Western worldview, but this is real. Praise God. But getting back to these animals, because I still haven't answered that question. This does not mean that God is oblivious to the animals or that He's dismissive of the lives of the animals. And we know that from the book of Jonah. You didn't think we'd be going to Jonah today, but we are. You might know the story. God commands Jonah to warn the wicked nation of Nineveh of coming judgment. Jonah refuses, he runs the opposite direction because he considers Nineveh an enemy. He wants them to receive the judgment of God. Well, God disciplines Jonah for his disobedience because God disciplines the ones he loves. And Jonah receives God's correction and he obeys God, goes to Nineveh, but he does it with what we say in our family, a grumpy heart, All right? The, the reluctant prophet pronounces the word of coming judgment and by the grace of God, Nineveh repents and God shows mercy toward the people. And then, in response to God's mercy, Jonah becomes even more angry with God. He says, I knew you would do this. Then, in the very last verse of Jonah, let me show you this. God explains to Jonah why he showed compassion toward Nineveh. It says in Jonah 4.11, last verse of the book, Why should I not, or should I not pity Nineveh? That great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Strange verse. But what God is saying is, is if, if Nineveh were to be destroyed by the judgment of God, their livestock would also be destroyed. And God is telling Jonah here, I have compassion for the people. I wanted them to repent and they have cattle. What does that tell us about God? God. God is not ignorant of the plight of the animals. He's not dismissive of their lives. God cares for the beasts. He made them, and he entrusted his precious creation to the care of his image bearers. But when a kingdom is in rebellion against God Almighty, the entire kingdom, men, women, children, and livestock, they all suffer under the just and righteous judgment of God. All right, so that was kind of an aside that answers a question that I had. But getting back to our why the flood, the reason number one that God is using a flood to enact his judgment is that this flood is the only way to show a decreating of the earth. And all that God has entrusted to humanity is being taken back and it is just for God to do this. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So reason number two for the flood. The decreation of the flood allows us to see that Noah is a new Adam. So though all of creation is being brought back to its original state, back to Genesis 1-2, what we are to see with Noah and the ark is that something is different between Genesis 7 and Genesis 1. And what's different is while in Genesis 1 there's nothing except for the Spirit of God hovering over the waters, in Genesis 7 there's an ark. And in that ark is Noah. And in that ark is a sort of mini-creation, a a mini-cosmos that has been carried through the judgment. And that little world will be cared for and ruled over by the righteous and blameless king who walks with God. That's what the election of, of Noah is all about. God chooses from all the earth a man who will represent him rightly. Someone, someone to start again with. Someone who's obedient to the Lord. And you see how many times and Noah did exactly as the Lord had commanded. Noah is obedient to the Lord. He's righteous. He walks with God. And Noah will spread the glory of God throughout the earth. That's the plan, just as it had been with Adam. That's what Adam had been called to do, isn't it? As we follow the story forward through creation, Adam is given dominion. He's put in the garden where God has provided all sorts of food. And then Adam rules over the animals. And that's what Noah is being called to do. Just as God brought the animals, male and female, to Adam for naming and authority, God brings the animals, male and female, to Noah. Not for naming, because that's already been done, but he's to care for them, to protect them, to provide for them, to save them. Striking difference between Genesis 1 and 2 and the flood story is that in Genesis 2, God provided all the food for the birds and the beasts and the humans in the garden. Perfect provision. Abundant provision. But in Genesis 6, since that garden is long gone, God tells Noah, you will need to provide food for the animals. Genesis 6.21, also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. We see more of this new type of Adam language in verse 18. When we see God's relationship with Noah defined for us in the text. Genesis 6.18, but I will establish my covenant with you. That word covenant, this is the first time we've seen this in Scripture. Very important word for all Scripture. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. We don't see that word covenant in Genesis 1 and 2, but it's understood throughout the rest of Scripture that there was a covenant there. God covenanted with Adam. The the arrangement with Adam, between God and Adam, that's what a covenant is. It's like a, a very important arrangement, a solemn arrangement, contract, if you will. What God had told Adam was, live in my dwelling place with me, obey me, experience the joy of eternal life in my presence, eating from my abundance, or disobey me, disobey my commands, and you shall surely die. That's God's covenant with Adam. Adam disobeyed, he broke covenant, he was expelled from the sacred dwelling place of God, and he died. Now God is establishing a similar covenant with Noah. It's essentially, Noah, I'm showing my favor towards you. I'm choosing you as the one through whom my glory will be made known. I'm revealing my word to you. I'm revealing my promise to you. Live in obedience to me, and you shall live in my blessing and continue to walk with me. Or disobey me, and you will suffer judgment. It's very clear, it's very cut and dry, cut and wet here, isn't it? There's a, if he disobeys, he drowns. It's very in his face. So Noah obeys, and so he lives, and he's brought through the judgment of God. And the result of God's covenant with Noah is that God is faithful to his promise from back in Genesis 3. God had promised that the offspring of the woman would continue on. Now think this, if God had destroyed Noah, if he had destroyed all of humanity and didn't preserve Noah, then God would not have been faithful to his promise from Genesis 3. The line of the seed of the promise would have been cut off. But friends, God is faithful to his promises. Great is thy faithfulness. That's why he preserves Noah in the way that he does. He shows favor towards Noah, and he also shows faithfulness to his promises. All right, so the third reason then, we're already on number three. The third reason that God uses a flood for judgment and an ark for salvation has to do with the construction of the ark and and, and with the ark itself before we get into this, we have to, to, to kind of do a little memory work here. I want you to remember again who Genesis was written for. In the mind of Moses, the, the human author of Genesis, the book is for his people. It's for Israel. It reveals to the people of Israel who are going into the promised land who the Lord God is and who they are and how God has historically cared for them. And providentially cared for them. Certainly, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, this book has an expanded purpose. But don't forget, Israel is the first recipient of Genesis. So the first point of connection for Israel is the ark. Israel has just come out of the Exodus. They've been following a man named Moses. And in the Exodus, when Moses is born, there's this mandate from Pharaoh, wicked Pharaoh, that all the little Hebrew boys would be killed at birth. Moses, his mother, rightly defies the government and keeps him secret for three months. And then, when she can't hide him anymore, what does she do? Well, the ESV puts it this way it says she put him in a basket made from papyrus reeds coated in pitch. But literally, in the Hebrew language, Exodus says she put him in an ark. There are only two times that we see the word ark, the Hebrew word ark, in Scripture. Here in Genesis six, seven, eight, and nine, and in Exodus, when Exodus chapter two, verse three, when when baby Moses is put in this, this little ark. And, and when little Moses is put in this little ark, coated with pitch, just like the big ark, Moses is saved through the waters of Pharaoh's judgment. By means of an ark. And the Hebrew people would have heard, the Israelites would have heard that and been like, oh, I get it. And then there's another ark connection in the building of the tabernacle. So not only were the recipients of of this book being led by Moses, but these people are the same people who lived and experienced the building of the tabernacle. God's dwelling place with Israel. So in Exodus 25, all the way through Exodus 40, we see these very Precise architectural directions given to God's people for the construction of every little aspect of the tabernacle. So, when these people who knew that the tabernacle had precise instructions, when they hear about the ark, and they hear about the precise dimensions that God commands for the building of the ark 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high, even the type of wood is specified and how many floors there would be, and how many rooms there would be. They would think, oh, this is like when God told Moses to build the tabernacle after God made a covenant with us. Then they'd see that exactly as God told Noah to do in building the ark, that's what Noah did. Genesis 6.22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And that would remind them that exactly as God commanded Moses to do in building the tabernacle, that's what Moses did. Exodus 40. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. They're drawing all these connections, and we're sitting in our pews going, so what? (laughs) Well, first of all, first of all, this is a reminder to Israel. Moses is someone they ought to listen to. So Moses is receiving instruction from God just as Noah has received instruction directly from God. Moses' obedience to God will bring Israel into the new land, just as Noah's obedience to God brought his family into the new land. Therefore, unless Israel wants to face judgment, they ought to stick very closely to Moses, the prophet of God, and do all that he says. This also, though, is meant to inform Israel about who they are as a people. They are... God's holy family chosen out of all the nations of the world and through Israel will come the holy seed through whom God will redeem the world. That's exactly who Noah is. Noah and his family are the same as Israel and their family. And just as the tabernacle's presence with Israel indicates God is saving Israel, the ark is literally the holy protection of God, the means of salvation for Noah and his family. So this, this as, as, as the Israelites are hearing this, they're, they're remembering this, this is the true story of Noah and the ark and the judgment, and they're learning that so long as they are living in faithful obedience to God in his presence, he protects them and cares for them just as he did Noah's family. Now, you're still going, okay, who cares? (laughs) Well, hold on. We have one more point of contact. To see how this matters to you and me, we need to get to reason number four for the flood judgment instead of some other means of judgment. Reason number four, the flood judgment isn't just judgment for the world. It is salvation for Noah and his family. The judgment of the world and the salvation of Noah are not two separate stories. They're the same story. It is the same event. God saved Noah through the judgment by commanding him to build the ark and then shutting him into the ark, and that ark endured the judgment of decreation. Probably the most vivid imagery of this we see in the, in the description of the totality and the power of the floodwaters of judgment. And as we read this, just notice the language. I, I, I dropped some hints as I was reading it earlier, but let's look at it again. Genesis seven seventeen to 23. Look at the superlatives in this. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. The ark floated on the face of the waters, and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, stock, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left. All, 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 only. All of this is a play off of the beginning of chapter 6. Where's that connection? Let me show you. In chapter 6, what is increasing? Mankind is increasing. In chapter 7, the waters are increasing. In chapter 6, the wickedness of man is great on the earth. And in chapter 7, the waters are great on the earth. In chapter 6, you have these, what are called the gibberim, the mighty men of old. And And then Moses, when he writes this, he uses the same word, gibberim, to describe the waters. He says, the waters are the gibbering. That means the waters are now the mighty ones, and the waters are mighty, and the waters prevail, and look how they prevail. It is like, it's, it's really, the description is like a battle between God and man, and God is just literally swamping them. The, the, the waters prevail totally and completely over all. Even the highest mountains are covered. And all happens exactly as God commanded it which is exactly like Genesis 1. God is clearly in control. He is he has reestablished he is God. He is the one with all authority. All of creation obeys God and his word. And it's the same as it was in Genesis 1. It's the same in Genesis 7 and it's the same today and forever. We're we're Absolutely to be reminded of God's power, God's authority here as we read this. And do you see the might and the power and the totality of God's judgment? Look at the language. The waters prevailed high above the earth, above the highest mountains. All flesh died. Everything with breath died. Only Noah was left. Which is, I'm just going to, an aside here, because I know some of you have the question of, is this a regional flood or is this a worldwide flood? If you think this is a localized flood, I just don't think there's any way the text supports that. It is total and complete judgment. That's the point. It is the erasing of the old creation, the beginning of a new creation. That's the point of the text. And the way that the apostles speak of this, think of the way Peter talks about the coming final judgment of God. When Peter talks about the coming, final, total, worldwide judgment of God, he doesn't point back to any of the localized judgments of the little cities or little kingdoms throughout history. He points back to the one time in history when there was a worldwide judgment. He points back to the Genesis flood. Add to that, in chapter 8, when God makes a rainbow and says, I'll never again flood the entire world. Now, if, if, if this was a regional flood, a localized flood, and God says, I'll never again send a localized flood, well, we know that there have been thousands of tidal waves and hurricanes and regional floods that have killed millions of people since Genesis 8. So then you'd have to argue somehow that God didn't really mean what he said in Genesis 8. He didn't really mean that there wouldn't be any local floods anymore. It just gets really messy. Just looking for a a way out of the authority of the text, squirreling around with the text and calling this a local flood, just doesn't solve any problems for you. It only creates more problems textually. Now, with that in mind, if you were to say, well, I believe the flood didn't happen at all, that it's just a story or a symbol or something like that, I'd say you're wrong, but that's a more consistent argument than a localized flood. The point of this story is total and complete destruction. God's thorough, total decreation, and God's righteous judgment of all of creation, which will only be repeated one more time at the end of time. That's the way the Bible, in total, speaks of this event. This is total judgment. All that has breath has been destroyed by the wrath of God, except... Those who are with the chosen one of God. It's very much an Acts 412 situation. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which anyone could be saved. Genesis 6 and 7. That is Noah who is trusting in Christ. Today it's only Christ. There's one last aspect of this I want to show you, my favorite verse in all of the verses we looked at today. All right, look again at verse 17. Verse 17, where the text says, the waters of judgment, the waters bore up the ark. Think about the language that Spirit has chosen for us here. It's not just that God judged the world and saved Noah separately. Is that God's judgment, the waters of judgment, bore up the salvation of Noah. God saved Noah through judgment by means of the very waters of judgment. The waters of judgment prevail against everything else, even the highest of mountains, but that which prevails against everything else bore up the ark. Friends, This is how God saves his people. This is a perfect description of how we are saved in Christ. And I think that's the Spirit's purpose in including that those four little words for us. Bore up the ark. The waters bore up the ark. In Christ's death, he received the judgment, the wrath of God that is due to you and me and the rest of the world. At the cross, God's wrath is poured out, all of it, poured out onto Christ. And if we are in Christ, though He receives God's judgment, we, at the very same time, receive what? Salvation. The judgment of God on Christ is our salvation. God, through His judgment of Christ, bears us up. Why? How how does that work? Because in in judgment, Christ died and was buried, and he rose again. So if we're in Christ, as Noah was in the ark, then we are born up, carried through the watery judgment of death, and we are raised with Christ, carried with Christ to new life. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. There's such, such a close connection here, and the church has always known about this connection. There's such a close connection here that if you were to walk through the catacombs underneath the city of Rome where Christians used to secretly gather for worship, and you were to look on the walls where they drew things, you would not see crosses. You would see pictures of the ark. Because they knew, as the apostles knew, as you and I know, The ark is Christ who carries us through judgment. Amen?